This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, 2013 is the new 2014. Time was that midterm elections framed the presidential election two years later, but in this odd year, the ballots in New Jersey and Virginia weren't even done being counted before the cable nets started in with their graphics depicting Chris Christie and Hillary Clinton as dueling nominees of their parties. That's, that's assuming both run and assuming both survive a primary and caucus season with built-in landmines for centrists like the New Jersey governor and the former Secretary of State Senator from New York and First Lady of the Land. And, and then there was another big election this week, the race to succeed Mike Bloomberg, the three-term mayor of New York City, Bloomberg made an indelible mark here, but voters overwhelmingly chose a man, Bill de Blasio, who promises to take the city in a different direction. Well, with the macker headed to Richmond and Christie remaining in Trenton for now, Hillary on the speech circuit and de Blasio weighing whether or not to move from Park Slope to Gracie Mansion, there's no one better to help sift through this haze of analysis and prognostication than my old friend, the deputy mayor of New York City, Howard Wolfson former top aide to Hillary Clinton and general man about town on his tricked-out blue city bike. He'll be with us in a moment. And then, from one island, Manhattan, to another, Iceland, we'll head to the glaciers above Reykjavik for a conversation with a young man, Parker Leotod, who's boldly going where no man has gone before, a quest to break the record for the fastest journey on foot from the edge of Antarctica to the South Pole. The trip, the Willis Resilience Expedition, begins December 3rd with 19-year-old, yes, that's 19-year-old Parker Leotard as its leader. But first, a man who faces the end of the road at City Hall in two months' time after the transition to the de Blasio regime. Howard Wolfson, welcome back to Polyoptics. Good to be with you. Howard, I'm looking at the front page of the New York Times from Thursday of this week. It's a similar picture as is running on the tabloids, too, and it shows two men, de Blasio and Bloomberg, their hands outstretched toward one another, one with a a hand on a soft drink, the other a cup of coffee. That's your mayor. Uh, Over an hour meeting, you tweeted out, what did they talk about? Well, I thought it was an interesting picture, by the way. uh, When I saw it, I thought of you, Josh, given how much you understand about the politics of imagery, uh, that the Times would sort of choose to crop that in kind of an interesting way. I wasn't quite sure what to make of it, but it was, it was an interesting shot. Um, the mayor and, uh, and the mayor-elect did meet for a little, a little over an hour in uh, the bullpen here at City Hall. Um, mayor Bloomberg uh, made clear to uh, Mr. DeBasio that the full resources of uh, city government would be at his disposal to make uh, the transition to his administration from ours as uh, seamless and productive as possible. Um, These are two men who uh, have known each other, uh, both obviously serving in government during uh, much of the last decade. Uh, And it was a good conversation. It was a cordial conversation. There was obviously some uh, difficulty and moments of rancor during the campaign. Uh, But uh, this mayor is very, very committed to um, a a very productive uh, transfer of power 
we want to do everything we can to make sure that Bill Bazio is ready uh, to be in office on day one, hit the ground running. And um, uh, and then I, and there were um, uh, some moments of levity, uh, but it was a, mostly a, a productive uh, conversation focused on the transition. Uh, you are joining us, I should mention, Howard, from the very bullpen that Mayor Bloomberg put into place 12 years ago. Speculation that that might not be Mayor-elect de Blasio's cup of tea. Any thoughts about how the operations of your mayor's office might change under this guy and whether that was talked about as you might have sort of been sitting at a few feet away observing this conversation? Well, you know, every mayor is going to have their own style, their own management style, uh, their own uh, sense of what works for them and what doesn't. Um, I, you know, the, the bullpen is not for everyone. Uh, it certainly is for Mayor Bloomberg, and it, it is for me. I, I never want to work in another environment uh, after having worked in the bullpen. I think it really works to provide access uh, to information and decision making, but you know the the mayor elect may choose to have a different model, and that's that's the that's the way the world works. I think more people were exposed to the idea of the meeting time clock than had ever seen it before. Any reactions to that? I did. I did get a couple of sort of quizzical responses on Twitter about the time clock. Uh, that the mayor installed them to uh, try to keep meetings uh, relatively brief. This turned out to not be a brief meeting. Uh, but it's, it's also a, a good way of, of actually keeping track of how long you're speaking. Um, I find that uh, having the time clock actually uh, compels a certain level of discipline on the process of meetings that sometimes get uh, out of hand. Howard Wilson, the mayor, has done a bunch of uh, retrospective interviews both before and after the election. But after uh, the votes were tallied, he sat down with Jake Tapper. I want to hear a little bit of what he said to Jake uh, on the lead on and CNN about why he has a vested inf- interest in uh, Mayor Electa Blasio's success. Keep in mind, I have a very big vested interest in making Bill de Blasio an even better mayor than I was, having his administration even be better than ours was. We've built a lot. We've given them a lot to work with, as did our predecessors. But the bottom line is I'm going to live in New York City, and I want Bill de Blasio's administration to be successful and our administration do everything to transfer everything we've been doing over. And then he's going to make his own decisions, and some things will look easy and then he gets into them, he'll find them more difficult, and maybe he'll change his mind. And that's exactly what we did the same thing. Howard, I'm looking at a really interesting article from a couple weeks ago, City of Water by Kevin Baker from the New York Times with uh, Mayor Bloomberg and Amanda Burden and Cass Holloway taking a tour of the waterfront, which really they say they're just at the beginning of transforming the city from its industrial past to its uh, connected future. Uh, what work still needs to be done on uh, the mayor's and Amanda's and Cas uh, uh, Holloway's vision, and how much do you think... Uh, Bill de Blasio will pick up on what's been what's being laid out. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the one the one constant in New York City is change. Um, that New York is ever evolving, ever changing, ever growing. Uh, you think you fixed one problem and then two others uh, pop up somewhere else. You think you fixed the problem and it turns out you haven't fixed it. Um, so uh, I, there there will be no shortage of both challenges and opportunities uh, for the next mayor and. You know, you do what you can in 12 years. 12 years is a long time. Um, this is a, uh, this in my opinion has been 
the best 12 years in the life of the city, uh, certainly in my lifetime and maybe in the city's history. I think we are leaving the city uh, better than we found it, and I think we found it. Um, I think Mayor Giuliani did some very good things, and I think putting aside 9-11, we found the city in, in a strong position. Uh, but, you know, th there are challenges that remain, and, and new challenges uh, and new opportunities. And hopefully uh, the mayor-elect will build on, as, the, as Mayor Bloomberg said, build on the positive things that we've done. I mean, if you look at the data, I work for a guy who says, uh, God, we trust all others bring data. So if you look at the data, we have... Uh, we have record population in New York. We have record tourism in New York. We have record low crime in New York. Uh, we have record life expectancy in New York. We have the most parks in our city's history. We have the cleanest air in our city's history. Um, uh, we have the most private sector jobs in the city's history. We have uh, bike share. We have uh, changed the landscape with uh, rezonings and uh, pedestrian plazas and bike share. So a lot of great things have happened in the last 12 years, but I think even Mayor Bloomberg would say not all problems have been solved, uh, and there's a lot more to do. And, and so we hand the baton over to the next guy and wish him well and try to help him do it. Howard, let's go back, if we can, just to 12 years ago, because, as you said, you got uh, the baton from Mayor Giuliani, but you also got the baton at an extraordinarily difficult time in the city's history. We want to remind people of what that sounded like. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Dumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. Howard, I can't remember exactly where you were on 9-11-01. I was down in D.C. Uh, but as you have accompanied Mayor Bloomberg to the rebuilding of the World Trade Center site and what that will become over the next few years, has he reflected to you on, on his view of how the process has evolved to, to put Manhattan back in the shape that it's, it's in now? You know, and in some sense, 9/11 feels like um, a lifetime ago, and in some sense, it feels like yesterday. Uh, the, the mayor did, uh, Mayor Bloomberg did, uh, assume office at a point at which their fires were literally still burning at Ground Zero, and there were lots of questions about whether or not uh, Lower Manhattan could survive as a viable commercial residential uh, business entity. Um, and uh, we have not only survived, but we have uh, grown and prospered during uh, the last 12 years. Um, an enormous amount of work has been done at the Ground Zero site. Um, coming to work every day, I see uh, the new buildings uh, rising ever higher. Um, Lower Manhattan has been transformed into a residential community that supports uh, families with children and schools and restaurants and shops in a way that it never did before. Uh, when I was growing up uh, in New York, Lower Manhattan in the evenings was a ghost town, and now it's uh, as alive and as crowded uh, with bustling people as any neighborhood in the city. So New York has come back spectacularly. Um, I think if you look at New York's history, New York has always come back spectacularly from challenges. Uh, but, but certainly uh, coming back from 9-11 was a, was a very important uh, challenge that the mayor faced coming into office and one that I think that uh, he and most importantly one that the city most importantly uh, met together and, and uh, was successful in.
Howard, let's hear just a little bit from Mayor-elect de Blasio's victory speech. We've stared down the hateful destruction of terrorists. We've endured the ferocity of gale force winds and surging tides. And each and every time, New Yorkers have faced seemingly insurmountable obstacles with grit and determination and an unyielding commitment to one another. And we have always, always prevailed. Someone who Bloomberg thought would really follow in all of the efforts that, that he's put in place to the letter. You know, this is a 70% Democratic city. Um, and despite that, we have had Republicans and independents over the last 20 years uh, elected and reelected to office five terms of Giuliani and Bloomberg. And they were hired um, at, a po- at points in which the city faced crises, the crime crisis uh, in the early 90s and the crisis after 9-11 in 01. And I think that those crises or crises um, gave uh, people, I guess, a permission to vote outside of their typical partisan voting patterns. The crises have largely abated. Um, the 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 jobs that Mike Bloomberg and Rudy Giuliani, uh, or the, the 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 jobs that they were hired to to do, the problems that they were hired to fix, have been fixed. Um, we still have crime here, but but it's extraordinarily low. And um, the city works; it functions. Government uh, delivers services in an honest, efficient manner. Uh, and uh, I think left to their own devices, people tend to revert to their own predictable partisan behavior. We see that, you know, both in New York and around the country. And this was, in, in that sense, a much more typical election. Democrats, who uh, comprise about 70% of the city's population, wanted to vote for a Democrat, and they did. So then let's move down to a state that has much more of a swing, swing voter status, uh, where Republicans and Democrats have really traded off power and that's Virginia. I want to hear a little bit of our friend Terry McAuliffe in his victory speech earlier this week. The economic challenges facing Virginia are daunting. Sequestration for another year and more federal budget cuts on the horizon. But for those of you who know me well, I believe that a daunting challenge is always a great opportunity. Working together, we will protect the jobs that we have, but we will work to diversify our economy. So now we call him Governor Macker. Howard, what do you think of, the, think of that election? Very exciting uh, for us. We spent, uh, the mayor spent a little bit over uh, $3 million uh, on uh, ads in Virginia on behalf of Kerry and uh, the uh, Attorney General candidate, Mark uh, Herring. And uh, we're very excited uh, by Terry's victory. Uh, Terry ran as a unapologetic supporter of uh, sensible gun legislation uh, to keep uh, families safe. Uh, the NRA targeted him. He was running against uh, an NRA darling in the NRA's home state, and we were able to uh, to help him uh, uh, grind out a victory, which was very gratifying. Howard, let's hear, if we can, one of the ads put up by Independence USA, which is the uh, PAC that is supported by uh, Michael Bloomberg. And I, let's hear the 30 seconds and talk about how that gets created and put on and what results you saw based on exit polls in different parts of the state. The gun show loophole. It means anyone can buy a gun without a background check. 
the dangerously mentally ill, criminals, endangering our families. Ken Cuccinelli opposed closing the gun show loophole against comprehensive background checks at gun shows for criminals and the dangerously mentally ill, siding with the NRA and undermining law enforcement. No wonder the Washington Post calls Cuccinelli polarizing, provocative, and partisan. Cuccinelli, too extreme for Virginia. Independence USA PAC sponsored this ad. Howard, bring us through the sort of creative targeting and media buying aspect of, of a buy like that, obviously not coordinating directly with uh, uh, McAuliffe campaign, but, but trying to influence uh, voters where you think a message like that will resonate. It is certainly the case that um, that is a message that resonates better uh, in the Washington, D.C. media market than in other parts of Virginia. And that was an ad that was only run in the Washington, uh, D.C. media market. Um, our sense was, and I think the McAuliffe campaign would, would confirm this, that uh, Terry needed to um, uh, to do extremely well in northern Virginia. Uh, he was a candidate that um, um, w- was uh, his was a candidacy that I think uh, w- was um, uh, not quite designed, but designed to uh, appeal to voters in Northern Virginia, uh, and especially around the social issues that uh, the Republican um, uh, candidate, Mr. Cuccinelli, uh, was uh, so conservative on. Uh, Terry provided a real contrast on abortion rights and uh, and gun issues, and so. This was an ad that ran in that market. Uh, in uh, 2009, the Democratic uh, challenger uh, or candidate uh, for Governor uh, Cray Deeds um, did rather poorly in Northern Virginia. Um, and uh, we, and I'm sure the campaign, thought it was very important for Terry to uh, outperform uh, him in order to win. And that's exactly what happened in uh, 20 of the 21 counties and cities that make up the D.C. media market, Terry outperformed uh, Cray, De- Cray Deeds' numbers uh, from, uh, from 2009 and, and provided uh, the margin of victory. Now, Howard, Mayor Bloomberg will be the first to say in some of these retrospective stories that uh, you don't win every war, you don't win every battle. You, um, you might have started early in 2001 or 2002 by saying that smoking should be eliminated from New York City restaurants, and now they don't allow smoking in restaurants in Dublin. So that has certainly caught fire. Uh, uh, same-sex marriage as well, uh, s- allowed in so many states now, and and certainly many of the other things that really have started here in New York City. Uh, is the gun... Is the sensible background check and gun control issue something that you think is going to make more progress in years to come? Well, that's the goal and the hope. I mean, it was interesting you say you talk about smoking, and you're absolutely right. Uh, New York City was the first municipality to ban trans fats, which is something that Michael Bloomberg did in 2006. And just today, just this week, uh, the uh, FDA... Uh, came out with uh, their proposal to ban trans fats all across the country. So we like to say that what happens in New York doesn't stay in New York. Uh, it goes viral and it goes all over the country and all over the world. And uh, on so many issues, uh, you've seen that. And I think uh, increasingly on an issue like um, uh, sensible background checks, where the vast bulk of the American people support that, uh, you will see uh, more and more municipalities, more and more states moving in that direction. 
one thing that uh, doesn't didn't happen in New York this week. It happened just across uh, the Hudson River and into Trenton was another uh, big election victory, this time for Republican Chris Christie. Let's hear a little bit of him from earlier this week. Listen, we're in New Jersey. We still fight. We still yell. But when we fight, we fight for those things that really matter in people's lives. And while we may not always agree, we show up. We show up everywhere. We don't show up just in the places that vote for us a lot. We show up in the places that vote for us a little. We don't just show up in the places where we're comfortable. We show up in the places where we're uncomfortable. Because when you lead, you need to be there. You need to show up. You need to listen. And then you need to act. Howard Governor Christie on the cover of Time magazine this week headlined the elephant in the room, a triple entendre in many ways. Uh, and yet you read some of the reporting after the election and you see how his strategy really was to court Democrats at every opportunity. Now, your partisan hat has come off in many ways through your role uh, in New York City. Mine comes off when I look at the pure polyoptics of this. But uh, I see him as a a formidable player if he can get through a primary process on the Republican side. Do you, where do you, how do you and your boss, who've had to deal with Governor Christie through Port Authority issues uh, many times, really see this guy as a political contender on the national scale? Well, I think you're exactly right. I think if he can get through the Republican nominating process, he would be a formidable general election candidate. I am uh, hardly an expert on the Republican primary process, but uh, as an outsider, it certainly seems like uh, it would be a challenge for someone with his profile to get through, but uh, presumably not impossible. And if he did, he would be formidable. Um, in terms of dealing with him in the Port Authority and other issues, look, he was a, a fierce advocate for New Jersey's interests as he perceived them, uh, and didn't always uh, see eye to eye with him because he was representing New Jersey, we were representing New York. But that's okay, that was his job to represent New Jersey. Um, I think that he comes out of this election with a very strong narrative going forward, uh, especially in contrast to the Cuccinelli defeat in Virginia. I think uh, uh, Chris Christie can plausibly, incredibly say to Republicans all over the country, look, when you nominate uh, Tea Party candidates, they're going to lose even in swing states. But uh, someone who has a proven track record of uh, reaching out and uh, getting things done in a bipartisan way um, can win uh, as a Republican even in a blue state. So I assume we'll be hearing a lot more about that uh, as the uh, months uh, go forward. Howard, another person that uh, is going to probably leave their job at the end of this administration, in addition to the many people who uh, uh, worked with you and Mayor Bloomberg, is the police commissioner, Ray Kelly. You cited earlier the dramatic drop in crime in New York City over the past 12 years and then reaching back into the prior administrations. And uh, you have you and I have talked in many times about the success of stop and frisk. It was dealt a severe setback by the courts earlier this year, and then that was reversed a bit this week. And then uh, Commissioner Kelly went up to Brown University uh, to give a speech and answer questions about it, and it didn't really uh, turn out to be a, a smooth conversation. Let's hear a little bit of that. I want to speak to you about the role of proactive policing and the role it's played in the keeping New York City safe in our post-9-11 environment. Asking tough questions is not enough. 
Howard, obviously not a Josh King site that uh, Commissioner Kelly went up to talk to at, at Brown, and you tweeted out after disgusting, I think. Have you talked to the commissioner since, and what's your thoughts on that? I have, and um, look, I, I, I think that the, um, the most important thing in a democracy is that uh, opposing views get heard, that people who have different perspectives uh, can listen to one another, uh, can hear one another, and uh, can either find common ground or can agree to disagree. And I, I just find um, th- these occasions where people shout somebody down from speaking uh, abhorrent. Uh, you know, it's 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 really sort of fascistic in my opinion. Um, I, I think. As difficult as uh, as our differences can be, you, ha- you have to be able to give someone a respectful hearing, or democracy doesn't work. It just doesn't function. And so I, I always respond very, very negatively when I hear these stories of people who are uh, shouted down and prevented from speaking. Obviously, in this instance, I'm I'm a supporter of Ray Kelly's. I think he's the greatest commissioner in the history of this city, and his was going to go out. Uh, with very high approval ratings, despite the, despite criticism like this, um, but I would feel this way if it was somebody that I disagreed strongly with. I just don't think in America you should ever shout somebody down from speaking. You should you should um, provide a, uh, a counter protest if you want outside. You can do a, a teach in. You can have your own forum. Uh, you could have a debate, uh, if possible. There are lots of ways that you can engage in a dialogue of ideas, but screaming and yelling um, so that someone can't be heard is just, uh, I think it's abhorrent. I really think it's abhorrent. Uh, turning up a little bit from Providence, where Brown was, and, and up to Boston, Howard, another passing this week as uh, uh, we have the election of a new mayor in in Boston, uh the last time we will have uh, Tom Menino uh, presiding over at City Hall before that transition. Uh, there was a, an interesting uh, spot made between uh, between Mayor uh, Bloomberg and Mayor Menino earlier this year for mayors against illegal guns. I want to hear a little bit of that. Giants. Patriots. Eli. Brady. We don't agree on much. For example, the Red Sox. Yankees. Beans. Bagels. We both support the Second Amendment. And believe America must do more to keep guns out of the hands of criminals. You know, over 600 mayors across the country agree on common sense reforms that would save lives. Add your voice. Go to mayorsagainstillegalguns.org. It's a patriotic thing to do. You can make a giant difference in our country. Howard, a better year for my Red Sox than your Yankees, but has Mike Bloomberg over the past 12 years become a more comfortable communicator, a person who feels that they can lean into a script like that and have a little bit more fun than he might have before he became mayor? Oh, unquestionably. I mean, I think anybody gets better. If you're not getting better at what you do over 12 years, you're, you probably shouldn't be in the job or you're doing something wrong. So I, I think that uh, unquestionably the mayor has gotten uh, more comfortable with uh, with those kinds of of ads uh, and and I should say you know Tom Menino has been an amazing mayor I mean he is he's done amazing things for Boston he's one of this country's great mayors and I think he will be missed not just in Boston but in uh places all over the country I think he was uh he, he was a mayor he was a mayor of mayors I mean he was one of these guys that uh uh, really transformed uh, the city that he led in a very positive way, and I think he will really be missed. 
a bit more on the Bloomberg legacy, Howard. Uh, here's Mayor Bloomberg at the reopening earlier this year of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Lady Liberty, who's welcome to all, is uh, to all who yearn to breathe free, is just, I think, like the 4th of July. It's at the heart of what America really is all about. It's an opportunity to remind ourselves of how lucky we are to have ourselves or our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents come here so that we could have all of the opportunities that the most wonderful country in the world provides. Howard, uh, about a year ago when Superstorm Sandy put Liberty Island and much of the immediate coastline of New York uh, imperiled, we never thought uh, as much that the water could be such a... a, a um, uh, could be so aggressive against the city of New York. What what has the city done and what is part of the Bloomberg legacy of preparing for how climate change could be affecting New York? Well, we put together a an extremely well-received and very comprehensive plan to deal with uh, future uh, storms and future threats like Sandy um, that, uh, you know, we will largely leave in the hands of the next mayor. Um, some of the projects that called for are uh, smaller projects, uh, you know, uh, building berms and, and those types of things, but some of them are much larger. Uh, we've uh, discussed the possibility of, of building a uh, an analog to uh, Battery Park City on the uh, on the east side of Manhattan to go along with the west side uh, version in, in Battery Park. And so uh, a lot of big ideas, um, and uh, um, the, the mayor-elect has actually spoken fairly positively of our efforts in this regard, and I think uh, it will obviously be up to him and uh, the citizens of the city uh, to uh, to determine uh, what what they move forward on and what they don't. But uh, certainly, a, a very good plan in place. One thing I think of Howard uh, very much as part of the uh, Wolfson legacy, as much as the uh, Bloomberg legacy, has been city bikes. And I've seen in recent weeks uh, you tweeting out the LeBron James ad from Miami. You've pictures of Brooke Shields as she uh, walks around the West Village uh, dressed as a city bike during Halloween, R.J. Smith getting to the uh, getting to uh, the Madison Square Garden for a game. Uh, and then there's people on the other side like Delia Efron. What's, uh, certainly city bikes have transformed the look and uh, uh, activity of New York City streets as a biker and as one of its major advocates, uh, how do you how do you think of the debate and where it's sitting as you get ready to leave office? Well, I think the debate has been settled. I think the bike wars are over and the bikes won. Um, I think you've got um, uh, some critics uh, who uh, increasingly uh, marginalize themselves with their arguments, uh, but the vast bulk of the people of the city. Uh, are in love with city bike um, the the polling on this is is very very crystal clear and very overwhelming and um, uh, uh, we have really uh, and I give Jeanette Sadakan, I give the mayor our transportation commissioner I give the mayor enormous amount of credit there's been a real transformation of the of the streetscape of this city uh, due to uh, city bike and bike paths and bike lanes. Uh, it's made a, a phenomenally positive difference and given people another transportation option. You know, this is a, we're a city of walkers, we're a city of subway riders. We have the largest number of people taking uh, subways of any city in America by a long shot. Uh, obviously, we have a lot of cars here and people will continue to drive, but now we are helping to provide another transportation alternative in the form of uh, safe, uh, safe and inexpensive biking.
So then uh, what next, Howard, for both Mike Bloomberg and Howard Wolfson? I'm looking at the uh, cover story of Time magazine from a few weeks ago, Bloomberg Unbound. I looked at the beautiful photo essay by Charles Amani of his travels through uh, the U.K. and France talking about philanthropic projects he might get involved with. There's a little bite out this week to say that he would return to Bloomberg View, perhaps as chairman, write some op-eds, and yet that would seem rather a small slice of time for the things that he might want to be involved with. So what's what's the groundwork for what he'll do after he hands over office to uh, Bill de Blasio? Well, he's going to take uh, some time off uh, in January. Um, he'll enjoy some quality time uh, in New Zealand. Uh, I think a place that he has never been would very much like to visit. Um, he's going to do some traveling. Uh, look, in many respects, the, the, the sky is the limit uh, for him. As my uh, colleague and predecessor, uh, Kevin Cheeky, likes to say that in some respects being mayor actually uh, constrained him and his ability to uh, do things and get things done. So uh, I think he, the, the number of things that he's going to be involved in will be, will be significant, and you certainly will see him uh, continuing his uh, philanthropic work and his political work. And uh, he also obviously owns a uh, fairly large and successful uh, company, so a lot, a lot of opportunity for him. And can we get the Wolfson 2017 uh, Exploratory Committee started off soon? <laughs> uh, I'm hoping for... Uh, for a guest, a guest host uh, job on polyoptics, if uh, if that would be uh, in the offing, uh, I too I'm going to uh, take a little bit of time. Um, I haven't had a vacation in about a year and a half, and uh, um, hopefully get to do something interesting and exciting. And uh, you will be the first to know when I when I know. I'm sure I won't be. But anyway, uh, in your appearance earlier this week on the Daily Rundown, uh, Chuck Todd asked you for one of your recommendations of a New York of a good new band that we should listen to. I think you talked about Julie Ruin. I want to hear a little bit of her uh, and get your views on why this is something you should uh, uh, get on iTunes. Wolfson, a good New York band, but it's not Simon and Garfunkel-ish. It is not Simon and Garfunkel, no, it is not, uh, it is not the sounds of silence uh, from our friends from Queens. Uh, Julie Ruin is a band uh, fronted by a woman named Kathleen ha- Hanna, who is uh, our age, which I always like when people our age are still making great music and rocking out on stage. Uh, she uh, is married to a member of the Beastie Boys. She lives in Brooklyn. Uh, she was one of the sort of the pioneers of the Riot Girl movement in the 90s. Uh, she makes uh, music with a strong feminist message. Uh, and uh, uh, if you weren't if you weren't snapping your fingers to that, uh, there's some <laughs> there's some wrong with your hands. Howard Wolfson, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Deputy Mayor of New York City for Communications and, and Political Affairs, a person who has uh, helped. Uh, this city transform along with its mayor and his whole staff. Best wishes to you in your next chapter, whatever it is, and when you are ready to announce it, come back on the show. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, pal. See ya. After the break, a very special conversation with a young man I think you'll be hearing more from in years to come.
Wednesday, Sirius XM's POTUS and the Brookings Institution brings you a special event, China and India. Taking global politics local. Regional tensions and conflicts in the Asia-Pacific continue to have the potential to erupt into larger-scale conflicts. Former Governor of Utah and U.S. Ambassador to China John Huntsman and Virginia Senator Mark Warner, co-chair of the Senate India Caucus, engage a live studio audience in a conversation about these two global powerhouses. The President considers this a very top priority. That's Wednesday at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. East, only on POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Back here on Polyoptics on Sirius XM POTUS, Channel 124, I'm Josh King. Beginning in 1901, Robert Falcon Scott and Ernest Shackleton embarked on an expedition to find a route from the Antarctic coastline to the South Pole. It never reached its objective. Ten years later, 1911, Norwegian Roald Amundsen finally made it. Since then, Antarctica, nearly twice the size of Australia, has been relatively untouched by human presence. True, there's an existing base at the South Pole, but I'm told that more people summit Mount Everest in a single year than have been to the very bottom of the Earth in all of human history. That number should increase by at least two next month when Parker Leotod, a sophomore at Yale University, reaches the South Pole with his companion Doug Stope, following an unassisted walk of over 400 miles from the Ross Ice Shelf at the edge of the Antarctic continent. Parker's walk is being done in the name of science and to raise awareness about the dialogue on climate change, a hot topic, as it were, in the middle latitudes. Parker came to me about six months ago seeking support for his journey, which will conduct three types of scientific observation when he reaches Antarctica at the end of November. His record-breaking walk, attempting to be the fastest journey on foot to the South Pole and the youngest person ever to walk to both the North and South Poles, begins on December 3rd. If he makes the record, it will take him about 22 days, the equivalent of a little less than a marathon's distance each day. All of this, the Willis Resilience Expedition, accomplished by a 19-year-old. A few weeks ago, while Matt Bennett was sitting in for me on this show, I had the opportunity to accompany Parker on a training trip to the Langekul, or Long Glacier, in Iceland. The glacier is about 1,000 square kilometers in area, and the ice is about 600 meters thick at its highest point. As we erected tents and made our camp, but before boiling our water to enjoy a reconstituted freeze-dried dinner, Parker and I had the chance to talk amid the freezing cold of the glacier. Here's that conversation. Parker Lioto and I are standing at the top of a glacier in Iceland, and we've spent the entire day here, and we have uh, taken trucks up from Reykjavik and then put on cross-country skis and gone about five miles but that little feat pales in the greatest possible way to what Parker is going to do uh, in the name of science and in the name of awareness about climate change beginning uh, on December 3rd uh, this year as the leader of the Willis Resilience Expedition, and I don't usually mix business and pleasure, pleasure being this radio show and business being the work that I do for uh, Willis Group and insurance broking around the world, but in this case, business and pleasure is mixing because I'm here with my friend Parker at the top of a glacier in Iceland. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Josh. You and I have known each other for about six months. What happened when um, 
when I called you up and invited you down to see me in New York? Well, uh, we had this initial sort of shell of an idea for this expedition to the South Pole. And when we met, it was kind of the beginning of um, what became a much bigger vision for this expedition uh, and a much bigger idea for what we can do for science and for um, raising awareness about climate change and also for engaging people um, in a really important story about resilience. First of all, I should say, how old are you? I'm 19. <laughs> and uh, what are you doing now? What's your, what's your full-time responsibility? Well, I'm a student uh, at university. I'm in my second year. Uh, I'm hoping to, to graduate in 2016 with a degree in geology and geophysics. I'd add that the university is Yale. Uh, and what, um, how many credits are you taking this semester? I'm taking three credits, uh, just taking a little bit of a lighter workload so I can fit in all my training and my, uh, my expedition commitments, and uh, it's going pretty well. It's, it's balancing out to be uh, not too bad. So, uh, Tell me about the first time you decided that you would go to get into polar exploration. I was 14 years old. And I was interested in climate change. I wasn't really, I didn't really know much about it. I wanted to know more. I, I thought that this could be, um, it seemed to be a very important issue for my generation. And it was uh, just of interest to me. I also at the same time met uh, a polar explorer called Robert Swan, who was the first person to walk to both poles, um, who was himself very interested in, in using the story of the polar regions to talk about uh, the importance of climate change. And I eventually joined his Antarctic expedition. I was 14. And after that was when the first um, big expedition uh, for me came around, which was when I decided to, to try to walk to the North Pole. And what happened when you just... And was that with Swan? Or was that... Different? No, it was, um, it was with a different explorer called Doug Staup, uh, who I met through Swan, actually. Um, and we did that expedition together, just the two of us. How many days did that take? That took about two weeks. And were you doing scientific observation on that as well? The first time, no. Um, and then what happened was, on the on this first expedition, we didn't make it to the North Pole. We were 15 miles um, and away, and, and we got closer to the pole than any other uh, team on the ice. And the reason for this was because there was very high temperatures, the uh, water around the pole wouldn't refreeze, the ice was drifting also away from the North Pole very fast, and um, the second year when Doug and I came back, we started uh, to do research with some universities in Canada uh, and, and um, other institutions from around the world, and that was the beginning of the research component of the expedition. So. Um, and then, why now to, you've done, you've gone to the North Pole how many times? Three times. Uh, most recently, 2012? Right. And uh, why now to the south? Why to Antarctica? So Antarctica is very important for climate change in a couple of different ways. Well, first of all, it's, it's a really great place to study how the world is changing. It contains a record of uh, global change, uh, not just in, the, in, in recent years, but also in the past um, more than a million years. Uh, or almost a million years, uh, and so it's it's a very good environment to uh, for research opportunities. 
the other thing was that this expedition which was kind of a a dream from a very young age that that wasn't really realistic until very recently um was a very big step up uh, an expedition to the south pole from the coast is a much bigger uh, expedition than any other that i've done before and it was i think the next the important next step um for what i wanted to do uh, and for the message that that we wanted to to sort of perpetuate um okay so here we are we are in iceland on a training trip uh we've got some of our willis executives willis clients here uh what uh how many days left before you uh leave there's uh 29 days before i leave for uh antarctica walk me through how you spend the time between now and then and then how you make it uh, all the way down to the continent so every day between now and then is planned out exactly um and it's divided into tasks basically um and that means there's a certain amount of training i need to do um and a specific type of training for each day that has been planned out such as what kind of things such as uh, endurance type of training like long distance rowing 20 30 kilometers um or strength type training uh you know deadlifts um a lot of free weight uh, strength training, some uh, interval training, which helps a lot with endurance, and a lot of um, just very long, uh, long repetitive kind of things that can help um, build sort of that motion, which is, so walking maybe one or two times between now and the expedition, I'm gonna do a, an eight hour training session, um, which is not very intense, but very, very long. And hopefully not enduring too many more nights as cold as we are right now in the yeah. glacier. I, I, I see Parker's sort of, the, the uh, sides of his mouth are freezing up. So this is not as, as, as uh, uh, mon- monotonous as Parker Leoto usually speaks, but we are braving serious uh, glacial chill here on the glacier. Uh, okay, so training between now and then, and, and what else? There's a certain number of hours of sleep. Uh, which is increasing between now and, and the beginning of the expedition. That's important. There's uh, nutrition, weight gain. Uh, I need to still. I still have eight to ten pounds to gain. Um, then there's schoolwork to finish. There's a certain number of things I need to do before I leave uh, and to finish uh, for my classes. And there's some gear to be bought and some other scientific equipment to be shipped. So all of this stuff is planned out um, day by day. And uh, okay, so you you'll from New Haven, Connecticut. How do you get to the South Pole? So start off. Uh, I'll take I'll take the train down to JFK. Uh, take a flight from JFK Airport, in New York, to Miami. Um, then I'll fly from Miami to Santiago in Chile. Then I'll take a pl- another plane from Chile, uh, Santiago in Chile, down to Punta Arenas, which is um, the very southern tip of Chile. And then we wait there for a few days. That's where we prepare most of the expedition. And then our flight to Antarctica is um, on November 23rd. That's five days later, uh, five days after I arrive in Chile. Um, And that's a big Aleutian 76 jet um, to to the edge of the Antarctic continent. And then there we'll prepare for a few days and that's when we start the expedition. Uh, how many how many miles or kilometers of the expedition? So the 
the unsupported expedition um, to the South Pole from the coast is 640 kilometers, which is around 400 miles. And meaning, how much t- how much distance are you going to have to do in about a day? It's uh, around 18 miles or 30 kilometers per day if we want to uh, break the speed record. Uh, on foot and skis? On foot, uh, unsupported. We're pulling a 180-pound sled, which contains everything we need to survive. Everything you need to survive, which includes... Uh, what, how's your f- what, what, kind of, what kind of things do you eat? A lot of freeze-dried food basically means uh, powder to which you add water, and it mixes and creates something edible. Um, a lot of just high-protein, high-fat kind of snacks, um, chocolate, nuts, uh, beef jerky, that kind of thing. And um, that's basically it. That's just uh, the majority of what we will be eating. And then we'll also be adding uh, either energy or calories to um, the water that we drink so that means electrolytes for energy or um, soup for calories um, and then the before you start to walk you're going to be doing science uh, to what end and what how, how what is the purpose of your uh, scientific expedition so um, we, before the the unsupported walk we, we cross the whole continent uh, over 1800 kilometers or 1200 miles um, with this big vehicle that we are um, that we built for this expedition and we're doing three new research programs one of them is testing the lightweight weather station uh, for performance over the course of six weeks um, another one is, is looking at how a particular form of, uh, of hydrogen uh, gives us an indication to uh, as to or better indication of how the water cycle works which is important for climate change and the other program is looking into uh, how certain climate proxies have changed over the last few decades. Um, and uh, and what are the scientific organizations that are backing up uh, your work? So we're working with the Yale Climate and Energy Institute, we're working with Yale's Department of Geology and Geophysics, as well as the, the International Atomic Energy Agency and uh, GNS Science, which is a lab in New Zealand. So. Uh, and then there's also a program called Coldfax, which is based in, in the Netherlands. And Parker Leoto, maybe we will have a second half of this interview uh, in the warmer climes of uh, lower altitudes in Iceland. But I wanted to at least have a little chat with you while we're, while we're up on the glacier. But I look behind you, I see weather coming in. I think our, our mouths are both yeah. beginning to freeze up and we better get some freeze-dried food to experience the way you're going to experience it in Iceland. Yeah. So let's uh, we'll have part two later. Thank you. Now, I promised a part two of that conversation, but I think we'll hold off on that until Parker gets to Antarctica. We'll reach him by satellite phone sometime in December, and in the meantime, you can follow every step Parker takes, the gods of technology willing, at the website www.willisresilience.com. We've equipped a special truck that should transmit high-definition TV from beginning to end, and you can watch it all unfold live before your eyes. Antarctica in December is bathed in daylight 24-7. Polyoptics, as you might say, at the very end of the Earth. Godspeed, Parker. We'll be watching you from the warmth of our offices at home or work or on our mobile devices as the holiday season approaches. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. 
Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Thank you.